Women in Ministry, part two. I was really hoping I could do it all in one part. But today, we'll finish this teaching, Lord willing. Women in Ministry, part two. Creating a culture of courage for daughters. Creating a courage culture for sisters and wives. And of course, this is not an easy subject. It's a difficult topic. And the Christian church has been divided for centuries over the role of women in ministry. My desire is to create a culture that would champion every daughter in this house to reach every dream in her heart. I want to enable and embolden and encourage godly women. But at the same time, I want to stay true to the text and the teaching of Scripture. And last week we started with 2 Timothy 3.16 that says all Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. And we talked about all Scripture and the safe way to, to look at a Scripture, especially a Scripture that can be kind of a, 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 a difficult Scripture well, what we don't want to do is build a whole denomination on a scripture. We want to look at a scripture in the light of all scripture. And we talked last week how that the best commentary on the Bible isn't Matthew Henry. And I love Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. But the best commentary on the Bible is the rest of the Bible. And so what does the rest, how does the rest of scripture, how does all scripture come along a particular scripture? And of course, the best way to understand a text is the context, the culture, and the cross-referencing with the rest of Scripture, with all Scripture. And so last week we looked at a very difficult passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, and we talked that through. Now before I go to the second passage today that we're going to look at in Timothy, I'd like to just recommend a couple books to you that I have found helpful in my weeks and weeks, actually for months I've had a heart to talk about this, women in ministry. But these two books of, of the resources that I've gone through, YouTube, Internet, all kinds of things, I have found those two books right there, uh, Why Not Women by Lauren Cunningham and, and David Hamilton, and Hearing Her Voice, A Biblical Invitation for Women to Preach by Dr. John Dixon. If you are interested, you can get both of those books at Kurong, or you can download them from Amazon.com. Thank you. Today, we're looking at Paul's first letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be... In silence. The New Living Translation reads this way. Women should learn quietly and submissively. By the way, just for everybody's sake, I find for me personally, I learn best that way myself. Just say it. 
Let women, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. And then one more, just to give us a little scope of how this uh, is uh, translated in, in some modern translation. The message says it this way. I don't let women take over and tell men what to do. They should study to be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. Okay, so this is the text. Now, before I look at the context, I just want to share with you a very interesting uh, side note from Dr. Walter Liefeld. He's the professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical School of Divinity. He makes this amazing uh, observation on this passage of Scripture. He says, this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. He said, this is a descriptive passage. In other words, I do not permit, rather than a prescriptive passage, which would be, you should not permit. Now, it's interesting that this descriptive and prescriptive uh, approach is not new to the Apostle Paul. And the fact that in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, three times, we see Paul using this kind of an approach when he's talking about men and women and their relationship and coming apart for fasting and things like that. He says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 7, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. In other words, I say this descriptive and not prescriptive. We see in verse 12, pretty much same, similar thing. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife and does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. And then one more time he says this in or uses this approach in verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. All right, that's just a side note that I found quite interesting. Let's now take this text and look at the context. We take the text, we look at the context, we look at the culture, and we cross-reference the text so that we can have this, all Scripture is given and is profitable for doctrine, instruction. So the context of 1 Timothy is twofold. Paul's concern for Timothy and Paul's concern for the church at Ephesus. Now, Paul loved Timothy, and Paul had sown into Timothy's life, and when we read... Throughout the New Testament, we read about Timothy. We hear about Timothy. Paul loved him. Paul said, I don't have anyone in my world or in my ministry like Timothy. He is such a son to me. And he loved him. And we find out that Timothy was timid a little bit. And because Paul tells him, God's not given you, Timothy, the spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of, of a sound mind. We also find he had some stomach troubles. He would probably pastored a long, long time. I don't know. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, maybe even little, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. That's another doctrine we'll talk about, but maybe, maybe we won't. All right. But Timothy. Timothy was a son, and Paul loved him, and Paul had deep concern for Timothy. But also the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was the pastor. Now, Paul knew Ephesus really well. As a matter of fact, Paul lived there for two years. And it's interesting that when Paul came to Ephesus, when you read about Paul's first coming to Ephesus. Normally, Paul's traveling companions are Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas. But no, not to Ephesus. Paul goes to Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. They're his traveling 
partners, this couple, this dynamic couple that we read about throughout the New Testament. They're mentioned seven times in the New Testament, this couple. Five of the seven times they are talked about or introduced as Priscilla, her, and Aquila, him. Now, that's totally contrary to, you know, Roman uh, etiquette. You always say him and her, not her and him. But the very thought or fact that Priscilla, right there with Paul and Aquila, is called Priscilla and Aquila more often than not, probably has a, uh, a, an important connotation to it, that she was probably the key prominent person in ministry, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> of that couple. All right, everybody take a drink of water. So, that's, that's, so we're talking about the context. Six times, Paul gives personal instruction to Timothy. Five times, he gives general instruction to the church. So this is the culture of this, I beg your pardon, context of this text. Now let's look at the culture. So what was the culture at Ephesus? Well, could I say complicated and convoluted? <laughs> could I say debauchery and depravity? And with no even close to exaggeration. Ephesus was one, it was home of one of the greatest wonders of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Many would say the greatest of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus. It was the huge golden image of Artemis. Artemis and her magnificent temple. Artemis, the Romans called her Diana, and the Greeks called her Artemis. Her temple was so amazing and so magnificent, it could be seen from miles at sea looking onto the land. It took 120 years to build her temple. Entire mountains were quarried for its uh, uh, foundation. 100 marble columns, each soaring five stories high, that could take the, it took the place of an Olympic stadium. And so this is what Paul and Priscilla and Aquila walked into when they walked into Ephesus. Paul began to preach, his team right there with him, and they immediately began to see people convert to Christ. As a matter of fact, a revival broke out in Ephesus. It was astounding. People started getting saved, and, and it was no small thing. It was, it was actually huge. We, we read about it in Acts chapter 19 and verse 18 and 20. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And I'm just telling you right now, you didn't want to know what those deeds were when you understand in just a few minutes what was going on in Ephesus. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the volume of them, or I beg your pardon, the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. It was amazing what was happening. So much so, so many people had forsaken witchcraft. So many people were forsaking Artemis or Diana. And it was just... So much so that a silversmith named Demetrius looked at his trade as an idol maker, silversmith, looked at the union that he was a part of there, and saw that they were going to soon be out of business if this revival keeps going. 
There's not going to be any more worshipers of Artemis. There's not going to be any more worshipers of Diana if this, if this cult of Christianity isn't stopped. And so this guy gets the entire city of Ephesus in this uproar, an absolute uproar. They're, you know, like, like they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna destroy Diana. And the people, it, it, by the time the whisper gets to this one and that one, the whole town is in an uproar and they don't even know why. There's just confusion everywhere. We read about it in the 29th verse of, of Acts 19. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. This theater. They rushed into this theater with one accord. This is the 2,300-year-old theater of Ephesus. I've had the privilege of standing in it. I'm sure many of you have as well. This theater could hold 24,000 people. And so 24,000 people are in there confused. Demetrius has stirred up the town, and things are just going crazy. And here's what we read next in verse 34. But they all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Go the mighty Panthers. <laughs> for two hours, they cry out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great two solid hours. Now, who was she? What made her so great? Why was she so great? Well, she was the fertility goddess. She was the sex goddess. And her big, huge statue shows her with two dozen bare breasts. And her temple was filled with orgies and prostitutes and the practice of witchcraft. And she was known as the great mother of Asia. And Dr. Gary Hogue on his YouTube channel teaches that History shows us the practice of the worship of Diana, and, and here is what they've discovered. She was worshipped. Now, I'm going to show you this, and then I'm going to read this text again. So I want you to think about what I'm going to show you in this culture, and then I'm going to read the text again, and I know that you can put those two things together, right? So here's what we find out. She was worshipped with the gold plating of a woman's hair. She taught that women were created first and that they were the author of men. This was her version of the creation story. She was also the goddess of childbirth. And women were terrified that they would die, that they would perish in childbirth if they did not give her allegiance. In that culture, let's read this passage again especially the couple verses before it and the couple verses after it. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness, maybe as opposed to professing Artemis, professing godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, 
then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved. She will not perish in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. So we have the text. We have the context. And we have the culture. Now I want us to look at two Greek words in this text. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. I want us to look at this word authority over. This is the Greek word authenteo. Authenteo. This word appears only one time in the entire Bible. And it hardly appears anywhere else in ancient Greek literature. This word is so vague and so cloudy that experts do not agree on its meaning. It is not clear. It is not precise. You see, the clear word for authority, the precise word for authority, is the Greek word exousia. Now, that word is used 103 times. And that's crystal clear what it means. Exousia, authority. But this word, authenteo, is literally like no other word in the Bible. And hardly like any other word anywhere in Greek literature. And so this is difficult. And experts just do not agree on what it means. But in this book, I Suffer Not a Woman, by Richard and Catherine Kroger, they translate this passage like this, and many theologians think that they've got it right, using this word that is just kind of vague. And this is how they translate the passage. I do not allow a woman to teach nor to proclaim herself authenteo, to proclaim herself author of man, which, of course, is exactly what Artemis taught. Now, the second word I want us to look at, the Greek word, is the word to teach. To teach. I do not allow a woman to teach. This is the Greek word didasko, to teach. And according to Dr. John Dixon, great Aussie theologian, I've heard him speak, I love him, great Anglican pastor, brilliant apologist, and he's also the head of the fellow, uh, he heads up the Department of Ancient History at Macquarie Macquarie University, former pastor at St. Andrew's Anglican Church. Now according, and and I just really appreciate this man, actually I think he's left Australia now, and he's gone to Wheaton to head up the work at Wheaton College. That is how respected and in demand he is. Real down-to-earth guy. Good Aussie guy. Really love him. So Dr. Dixon says this. This word, didasco, to teach, meant to lay down the oral tradition of the apostles. It didn't mean to explain or expound a text. 
There was no text. There was only the teaching of the apostles. The teacher was the text. But eventually, the text would replace the teacher, the diadasco. Now, Reformed theologian J.I. Packer, I'm not a Calvinist, and I'm not a Reformed theologian, but I really loved reading J.I. Packer's book, Desiring God, when I was a young man, and I have deep love and respect for him. But J.I. Packer says that he explains this word this way. Teaching, in other words, is a different exercise today from what it was in Paul's day. I think it's an open question whether in our day, Paul would have forbidden a woman to teach from the Bible. When you teach from the Bible in any situation at all, what you are saying to people is, look, I'm trying to tell you what it says. I speak as to wise men and women. Next slide, please. You have, so you have your Bibles. You follow along. You judge what I say. No claim to personal authority with regard to the substance of the message is being made at all. It seems to me that this significant difference between teaching then and teaching now does, in fact, mean that the prohibition on women preaching and teaching need not apply. In other words, the authority of the Bible in our day has replaced the authority of the teacher in Paul's day. And J.I. Packer's openness to women preaching is based on the historic shift in authority from teacher to the Bible that occurred when the apostolic teaching was finally codified in the canon of Scripture. Teaching is therefore a different exercise today from what it was in Paul's day. Teaching today from the Bible is more of what Paul would have called prophesying or exhortation or preaching, not laying down the oral tradition as an apostle. And these ministries, prophesying, preaching, exhortation, as we saw last week, these ministries are not restricted only to men. And we see this now as we go from the text to the context to the culture to cross-referencing this passage now with the rest of Scripture. And let's just go to the big daddy, big daddy, big Scripture. I think. <laughs> let's drink on it. All right, 2 Timothy 2.22. Yeah, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. So this is really, uh, to me, this is like, this puts the nail in the coffin one way or the other. This is either going to shut them up or let them get up. One of, one of, this is kind of, this is it. So here's what Paul says to Timothy. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others 
also. So this is it. Paul just, now he just explains completely his heart and his attitude because he says, Timothy, commit these to pistas, faithful, trustworthy, loyal men, not on air, masculine, exclusive gender, anthropos, inclusive gender, men and women. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful anthropos, men and women who will be able to teach others also. All scripture is given. And that's why we cross-reference a scripture with all scripture. Gender inclusive, not gender exclusive. Paul could have sealed it right there and used the word anir, which means a sexual masculine man, not anthropos, which means good people, faithful people. And that includes women and men. Actually, I took the time to look it up in 61 English translations. I can't wait to get back to my regular preaching, I got to tell you right now. (laughs) 29 of modern translations today do not say faithful men. They say trustworthy people. And that's the accurate, that's the word. To understand a text, we need context. We need culture, and we need cross-reference with the rest of Scripture, like this one. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. How many of you at home, here in this room, have been baptized into Christ? All right, there's hands going up. All right, here's, listen to what it says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Aren't you glad we didn't put on a denomination? Aren't you glad we haven't put on a tradition? Aren't you glad we've put on Christ? And then here's the truth. You put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. In Christ, it doesn't matter our race. It doesn't matter our social status. It doesn't matter our gender. We put on Christ and we are one in Christ. And the Good News Bible translates it like this. There is no difference between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and free, between men and women, for you all, for you are all one in union with Christ Jesus. The issue is not women in ministry. It's women in Christ. And I want every daughter in the house to be a fearless follower of Christ. Inspired and admired. Applauded and lauded. Accepted and respected. And let me just finish today by talking about two more things concerning women. This will be real brief and short. I'm going to ask our team to come because I want to talk about headship and submission. And of course, this isn't to do with women in ministry, but it just has been a burden on my heart. And I just figured we've already opened this up. Let's just go ahead and get it out. 
And then we all go home and thank God church is over. <laughs> Headship. Is Christ the head of a woman? He's the head of the church. Women sure make up a lot of the church. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that the church is referred to as her. And yet we read about man. How did man become the head of woman? Here's the verse, 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Is the man the boss of a woman? Is man the ruler or authority of women? You see, this word, head, kephali, it can mean many things. It can mean head, this part of you. It can mean leader. It can mean ruler. But many, many times in ancient literature, it, it meant literally source or origin or the source origin. This is the word used for the source of a river. In other words, not head like head waiter, but like head water. Not like head waiters, but head waters. It could read, and I think should read, like this. The head, the source origin of man is Christ. The source origin of woman is man. She came right out of his side. And the source origin of Christ is God. Selah. The second word I want us to look at as I finish is submission. And we all know the famous passage, Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, secretly every man's favorite verse. <laughs> but... This is probably the most out-of-context text we ever quote. And I want to show you why. And then I'm going to shut up. The context of this verse. It always amazes me. So many Bibles, when they do the little subtitles and stuff like that, they start with this verse 22, and the little subtitle is, you know, uh, women or men or... or family or whatever. It's just so not true. This is not accurate. The context is not this verse. This is the verse, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord. No, the context is the verse above it. It's verse 21. This sets this amazing teaching, and the next 21 verses are written to support this verse. They explain this verse. This is the verse. This is the powerful verse. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. And the next verse that talks about women doesn't even have the word submit in the Greek. 
It's not there. It doesn't say that women submit yourself. It's just referring back to verse 21. And it basically says wives. Here's what it says originally. Wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. Under verse 21. Are you following me? The word submit is not even in the original language in verse 22. But it is powerfully in there in verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Mutual submission. And then wives, this is how you do it. And we've got those verses about the wife and the church to Christ. Husbands, verse 25. This is how you do it. This is how a husband submits to his wife. Because this is mutual submission in the fear of God. Husbands, this is how you submit. You love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This is how a husband submits to his wife and this is how a wife submits to her husband. For the husband, he submits like this. As I have loved you. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember the last supper, the blood covenant, new covenant. And in that new covenant, Jesus gives a new command that you love one another as I have loved you. This is what this is referring to. And when he taught them that you love each other as I have loved you, he had just set the example. The disciples' feet were still damp from the example of as I have loved you. And in a few hours, their cheeks would be damp with the tears as he demonstrates on Calvary, as I have loved you. This is how a husband submits to his wife. He washes her feet and he dies for her daily. It is a submission competition. It's a race to the back of the line. Her submitting to me like the church submitted to Christ and me submitting to her like Christ submitted to the cross. We submit to one another in the fear of God. And then he just goes through the examples. Children, this is how you do it to your parents. Fathers, this is how you submit to your children by not provoking them to anger. And then he says, slaves, this is how you submit to your masters. And then he says, and masters, this is how you submit to your slaves. Mutual submission. I pray. Every man in the house or at home will join me in esteeming and respecting and honoring women. I pray as men of God, we would value with high regard the ministry of women. I pray that we would believe in our daughters and our granddaughters and encourage them to reach for the stars. I pray that we as men would be teachable, humble, and grateful as we receive the engrafted word of God from our sisters. Would you stand with me?
Holy Spirit, I lay this word at your feet. I know some won't agree. But I ask you to still somehow take this word for everybody and let it be life-giving. Let it be thought-provoking. Let it be religion-crushing, tradition-stomping. And let us let doctrine from all Scripture help us to be instructed and corrected. And I pray that this church, Lord, I don't know about other churches, but I pray this church will always be a safe and a secure place for our daughters and our wives and our sisters, and that they would always be championed in this house. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.